This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks for using The Tome's Amazon and D&D Classics affiliate link. And you'll find out some more information about how you can help out the show later in the episode. This is Robert J. Schwab, the Prince of Darkness of Gaming, and uh, I'm here on The Tome Show. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Tracy Hurley. No, I'm not. She's not here tonight. I'm sorry. I lied. I'm not Tracy Hurley. Tracy didn't make I am. <laughs> yeah, you're Tracy Hurley. Tracy couldn't make it tonight, so you can all pretend you're Tracy Hurley. But you are here, and this is episode number 266 of The Tome, where we've opted to give a few bucks to this thing because its value is so much greater than a few bucks. Let's hope it pans out in this episode of The Tome, where we're going to give advice to people thinking about backing crowdfunded projects. And joining us for this episode are two people that add to our varied experiences with backing projects and two veterans of the show, even though one of them hasn't been on since the olden days of 4th edition, and when it was new, in fact. So welcome back, Jonathan Green, who's been on relatively recently. Hey, how you doing? Doing great. And also, returning from the 4th edition days, raised by Orcus himself, it's Chris Engler. <laughs> I think I was raised by Dorcas, actually. Oh, but, well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Good to talk to you again, Jeff. Absolutely. So we're going to just jump right into it. We're talking about crowdfunded projects. We're talking about whether or not to back them. So we're not talking – we're not giving advice to people who are thinking about like kickstarting their next big idea. We're talking about people who are like, hey, there's all these great RPG ideas out there being crowdfunded. Which ones should I back? Which ones shouldn't I back? How does this all work uh, and does it work and what's going on? So let's start off by asking which of you is the biggest expert and wants to explain what crowdfunding is? Um, yeah, I can jump on this one. Yes, do it. Okay, so basically the idea behind crowdfunding it usually happens on a site, either Kickstarter or Indiegogo, and there are a few other sites, and it's someone coming up and saying, hey, I've got this really cool idea to do a thing. And that thing could be anything from, it could be an RPG, it could be a video game, it could be making a new electronic gizmo, whatever. And say, hey, here's my idea, here's what I want to do, here's how much money I need. And I want you to be a part of it. So I, the idea is that you can get in on the ground floor and say, you know, yes, this is something I would really like to see. So you give them some money. And if enough people commit and they hit that funding goal, then you're charged whatever it was that you pledged. And then the creator gets that money to go off and do the thing. And then if everything goes well and everything turns out the way they expect it to, they'll come back in however much time it takes them and say, hey, the thing you wanted me to go make, I just made it. And here is you know, say your copy of the board game that you helped me fund or the, the documentary that you helped me film or the video game that I helped that you helped me develop. And that's the general idea in a nutshell. Yeah, and, and typically that's the way it works. I know that there is there has been an off and on um, discussions and debates about whether or not people should feel as entitled to things and whatever, because it's Kickstarter, it's not a store, you're not going there to buy things or whatever. But you kind of are, right? I mean, <laughs> nobody's backing your project because they're like, "Hey, this sounds fun. Let me give you some money. I want to be a, I want to be a, a, an investor that sees no return, right?" And it's an interesting phenomenon because the way I would, like, like Jonathan's description was spot on. Uh, when people ask me about it, not that that happens all the time, but the the term I use is is micro venture capital. 
Mm. Uh, not micro in terms of the amount that projects need, but in terms of the amount that individuals contribute. Because normally, like in a in a typical business world sense, when you're talking about venture capital, it's usually going to a small group of people uh, asking for a relatively large amount per person. Whereas these crowdfunding projects that we've seen, uh, particularly in gaming, rely on as a percentage of the whole, relatively small investments by a lot of people. Yeah, but it, but it's also, and this is the point that I was getting at, it's also dramatically different from that. Because if I am a venture capitalist and I, and I fund a project, then the expectation is when that project becomes profitable, I, I make some of the profits, right? I get my money back. Whereas that's not what's happening here, right? I'm, I'm, I'm backing a project because I believe in it, but I'm also kind of doing it under the auspices that when you finish the project, I'll get a copy. And see, that's where I think a lot of um, crowdfunding projects have really evolved. Because in the very early days from ones I saw, I mean, it was more akin to, in general, and this goes beyond gaming, but mm-hmm. even though I know we want to focus on gaming, it was, we need this money to make this happen. Whereas now I think it's fair to say specifically in the context of gaming, the optics around crowdfunding campaigns that I see and the way that people that back them interpret them is more of a pre-order system. And that's kind of something I want to unpack here because that can be, you know, you still have to kind of treat it as speculative, even though a lot of people mm-hmm. I know that have been disappointed by the results of crowdfunding campaigns uh, still feel a, a strong level of entitlement to uh, a return on their investment, which I think in, you know, if you're thinking about these things correctly, uh, you know, needs to be right-sized. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And, and certainly one of the topics I want to get into is sort of the risk versus reward uh, angle of, of crowdfunding things, right? But but yeah, I mean, when you back something, you shouldn't necessarily be coming into it with a an expectation of exactly what it's going to look like because it's not a finished product yet. If it was... They wouldn't need you. Or although sometimes every now and then you'll get somebody who has something basically done and the the funding is going towards artwork and layout and editing and, and printing and all that kind of those kinds of costs. Sure. The other thing that it's used for sometime is is really to gauge interest in things. Mm-hmm. Um, so it could be so one of the very early, hugely successful Kickstarters was one that uh, Tim Schafer and Double Fine Studios did, where they said, you know, we think there are people out there that might be interested in old school point and click adventure games. Let's see, you know, rather than us investing the money and potentially making a huge disaster, you know, you know, making something that no one really wants. Let's see, are people really interested in this? And do, is this something that people actually want and are willing to put tor- put money towards? Mm-hmm. So it's a way for companies to say, hey, I've got an idea. I think other people will like it. Let's test the water and see if this is something that people will commit to and yeah. throw money at before we have to invest all that money and find out for ourselves. And it's, a, and it's a little more than just like doing a quick, you know, online poll because in an online poll, it's really easy to say, "Yeah, I'm interested in this." But in a, in a crowdfunded project and in a Kickstarter or whatever, you're actually putting your money where your mouth is, right? Literally. So if, so if you say you're interested, you're you're putting something in, right? So before we get too far, uh, let's go through some of our personal experiences with uh, crowdfunding and backing projects, just so people sort of know what our experiences are and what, we, what we've done uh, and where we're coming from. So who, who wants to start talking about theirs? Uh, I can go ahead. So okay. I did a little um, summary before I came on of the, the projects I've backed, which have been through 
mainly Kickstarter, but also Indiegogo. So I've backed over the past, uh, I guess since 2011, so five years, 26 projects, and practically all of those have been gaming related. And my experience overall with crowdfunding has been positive. Uh, there have inevitably been production delays, which I think are endemic to crowdfunding because a lot of the time the people that are doing these uh, it's their first time uh, particularly when you're talking about games or, or anything but I'll stick to, to games that mm-hmm. have uh, components that need to be manufactured overseas that are highly detailed like miniatures and things like that uh, delays you, you, you should assume delays like when I see you know if, if the time until the projected completion date for most things I back is X I generally, as a rule of thumb, assume 2x in terms of when it will be in my hand. Okay. And I, I personally think, in my experience, that's a pretty good rule of thumb, and it'll help you to not be disappointed because, uh, you know, they're just giving an estimation based on the best information that they have. Now, other some companies that have done many crowdfunding campaigns can predict those dates with more certainty, and depending on how you're backing, like if you're backing an RPG and you're just asking for the PDF copy, that may you know hit your hand a lot sooner than somebody that requests a physical copy. But uh, overall, it's been very positive. And uh, there's there's backers that I've gone back to repeatedly. Uh, one that I'll mention by name is uh, Andy Hop of Mother Oith Creations, author of uh, the Low Life RPG. He's a guy whose products I really like, and I continue to back. So, Jonathan, what's your experience with backing projects? Um, so, I sat down and I actually counted and looked at the, the overall number of projects that I've backed, both successful and failed, since 2011. And I realized I might have a problem. <laughs> so, right now I'm at 73. Wow. And, yeah, and, like, and some of those have failed, and some of those were you know, for as little as you know a few dollars, but some of those are for a lot more. Mm-hmm. And now I'm remembering times when I had more disposable income than I had now. <laughs> um, but yeah, so most of those are uh, are gaming related. Uh, some of them are you know, pure RPGs, things like uh, things like Numenera or Shadows of the Demon Lord. Other ones are kind of I guess are you know RPG related or just you know, gaming accessories. Everything from uh, from dice to minis to terrain tiles to coin counters. Uh, most recently, one that focuses focuses entirely on developing voices for NPCs. Um, so the full the full gambit and. Um, yeah, like like we said, some of them have been fantastic successes. Some of the best uh, gaming products I've ever owned have come from Kickstarters, mm. and some of them have been massive disappointments. Either they weren't fulfilled. Um, in one case, a company that I I think I spent about two hundred dollars on the Kickstarter went bankrupt over the process of trying to fulfill all the orders because they didn't plan things out well. Um, and so there have been some colossal failures and some great successes. Uh, but for the most part, I've been very happy with it. Right on. Yeah, Jonathan, that's a good point. The 26 that I cited were the the ones that successfully funded. I did back a few that, that did not. I want to say maybe maybe four or five. Right, and it's worth noting that that's how most uh, crowdfunded projects work, uh, or at least how Kickstarter works. Uh, and we'll talk about the different sources of, of crowdfunding uh, projects to find it in a second. Um 
but the way Kickstarter works is you pledge a certain amount of money, but you don't actually pay anything until it's funded. Once once the the end of you know their deadline, their month or whatever it is has, of the campaign has ended, and if they have enough money to actually fund the whole project, then you pay. If they don't fund, you don't pay. You don't have to give anything up. So, um, so so that mitigates some of that risk. So I have uh, I think all of the projects I have backed um, have been on Kickstarter, and. Um, I see I, – I've pulled up my, my page here. I Since 2011, maybe a little bit earlier, um, I have backed only 11 projects. I feel like a, an inexperienced noob compared to the two of you. Um, and of those – ele- greater self-control. Well, maybe that's it. I, I pick my projects very carefully. Uh, of those 11, five of them have actually not only funded but delivered – um, which is part of the risk and reward that we'll get into. Um, one of them is base. Two of them are basically done, but maybe some of the the rewards weren't fulfilled. One of them is not done, but caught up in a legal situation, uh, and we can talk about that in a little bit. And the other three, um, I recently backed, so they just haven't finished yet. And in fact, I just got my backer kit uh, from for one of them recently, so I know it's on its way shortly. Uh, and I think I have two that are really late for me. Um, one was was estimated to be done in August of 2014, and I just got it. But I got it. Uh, and the other one still hasn't fulfilled yet from 2014. 2014 was not a good year for Kickstarter for me. I'm waiting on one from 2014 now as well. Oh, or is it the same one? Uh, I, I mean, I don't want to mention it by okay. name because they are... They are just because I don't want it, they are like providing monthly updates and progress, and there's been mitigating circumstances. And I didn't invest for all that much, so okay. I'm not uh, okay. You know, it's not like I invested five hundred dollars, and I'm confident right. it will it will be it will be fulfilled. It's just taking them longer than they. From are. your description, um, it I don't think it's the same one because mine is caught up in a, in legal issues. Oh no, that's not this one. This is a a local to Toronto. Basically, a couple is writing a, an RPG setting. Uh, cool. So that's our experiences uh, with with crowdfunding things, uh, and it sounds like you guys both uh, obviously feel like you've had a, a generally positive experience. Um, I've had a mostly positive experience. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that any of my experiences were negative because I always knew going into it like there's obviously some risk, right? It's it's entirely possible that things won't exactly go down the way they're supposed to or whatever, uh, and that's part of the process, right? Um, so I'm kind of okay with all of that. and and But what it has done, you know, if I look at my first four projects that I backed, um, three of the four have not fully fulfilled um, what they said they were going to do. And so I think what happened after that is I became a little more picky about what, what I was going to back and what I wasn't going to back, which is why I've backed 11 projects, right? Um, and the ones that I'm waiting for right now are from companies like Cobalt Press and Green Ronin, and I know they're going to fulfill, right? They're going to deliver, and I can almost guarantee they're going to deliver on time because it's Green Ronin and Cobalt Press. They know what they're doing. Yeah, they've got a track record, and that's when you're picking projects. I mean, that's one of the first things I do because one thing that Kickstarter does and they make very public is uh, any company that, or it's not always a company, but any anyone that puts a crowdfunding project on their site it shows them two it shows everybody i should say two very important pieces of information 
how many campaigns they've done before, mm-hmm. and also how many they have backed. And I think that's a very compelling contrast, because one thing that I always look at when I'm contemplating funding a project is, okay, have they done a campaign in the past? Now, inevitably, you know, I mean, you always have to do your first project. And I'm a little wary of backing things for brands that are unknown to me. Like, like you said, if it was something like, you know, Green Ronin doing their first Kickstarter, I would have confidence given their track record of producing. But something that if you're looking at a project, it's their first one, uh, and you're a little wary, I find that a good barometer for how bought in they are to the whole concept is how many that they have backed. Mm -hmm. Because when I see, you know, first created, zero backed, you know, it's not an indictment, but it's a, it's, it's not a check in favor because Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it suggests to me that they're brand new to the phenomenon of crowdfunding. And if somebody hits their first or second project, but I see that they've backed 20, that tells me that they have an understanding of the the expectations that people will have around crowdfunding. Mm-hmm. So I can actually, um, so I'm in the process right now of preparing to run my own Kickstarter, and I want, and the process of having you know, backed so many of them has opened my eyes very wide to a lot of problems. So things like inevitable shipping delays. If you work with China, are you prepared for Chinese New Year ruining all your shipping times? Hmm. Like random things like that, that people who have, they, they're very involved with Kickstarter and know a lot of it, like, that they're going into with their eyes wide open because as, as preparing for mine, I've got a laundry list of like, right, what are all the things I'm not going to do that I've seen other people mess up on? Um, so even though that's, you know, you would think it's a small thing, like how many of this has this other person backed? There, it really does give a lot of experience, and it basically lets lets you know, right? These people, this person has seen the other problems and where other people have screwed up, so they will hopefully know enough to avoid those projects or those problems. Okay. Uh, any other discussion, sort of, on what the risks versus rewards are? Because I think that's a pretty important concept to get around. We've kind of danced around that and and touched on some things, but. What are the risks? What are the rewards? I mean, obviously, we've, we've mentioned, you know, there's a risk that it doesn't get funded or it doesn't get fulfilled. And, and, you know, if it doesn't get if it gets funded but not fulfilled, then, like, you've given your money and you're not going to get anything for it. Right. So that's a risk. But what are yeah, the so po- I, what, what are the what other risks might there be and what are the potential rewards? Go ahead, Jonathan. Um, yeah, so what you mentioned, that's, you know, that's the one extreme that basically someone is just going to take your money. Um, the other problem is that, uh, you might get what you were promised and then what you're promised might not actually resemble very much what you thought it was going to be. Like you could back someone who's going to be making some miniatures and then you get those minis and you're like, wow, these look like they were, you know, made from Play-Doh and then left out in the sun just a little bit too long and then cast in metal. So it's you know it's possible that what they said they would do or um, you know like the quality of workmanship or something may simply not be up to your standards. So it's possible that you could get your reward, but it's not quite what you expected it to be. On the reward side, um, so the sometimes for uh, for larger projects during the initial crowdfunding phase, sometimes you can get things for significantly cheaper than what you would see at uh, at retail price. Um, so I mean, it is I get, you know yes, technically you're pre-ordering something before it's finished, but sometimes you can get it at um, you know a, a, an RPG book for twenty dollars 
that in a store would cost you $50 for the hardcover version. Mm-hmm. Next means you can get things for significantly cheaper. Um, occasionally you can find yourself on the ground floor of something that is just going to take off later and then suddenly you're the, you and 200 other people are the only one with a copy and everyone else is scrambling to get it and then you can you know rake them over the coals on eBay. Uh, for the people who were smart enough to back the Kingdom Death board game Kickstarter, I think it was something like $150 to get a copy of the game, and now it's going for over 1000 on eBay. Wow. Just because everyone suddenly realized, oh, this is an amazing game, and there are so few of them available. So every so often you, you can hit the, uh, hit the jackpot like that. I think that you know, dovetails nicely into what I wanted to say, and it complements that well, is that I don't think anyone as a backer should be spending any money on Kickstarter without thinking that it is in some way speculative. Uh, Like Jonathan said, because you're backing sometimes a, you know, version 1.0 of what this company is producing, the production value may fall short of what they initially hoped to achieve. And that's something that you have to resolve in your own mind before backing any project that, you know, what you get out of this may be somewhere on the continuum of nothing to beyond your wildest dreams. And it could fall anywhere along that continuum. And I personally don't feel that uh, you have much entitlement if it falls short of your expectations to, you know, to, to feel that you need to be um, made whole because of that, because you were offering that. I mean, to me, it's like investing in a stock. I mean, you right. can't phone up a, a company that you invested in. Well, you can, and you can, you know, you, you're allowed to have whatever feelings you want, but you don't have entitlement to be made whole. Right. Now, that will color what, you know, that could definitely color whether or not you have trust in investing or backing that same company again. But I know friends of mine that have been burned by some Kickstarters that went really bad. But I, I, I always come back to you should not view anything that you back on crowdfunding as anything beyond speculative. And I think because of the way that many Kickstarters look and feel like pre-orders, mm-hmm. people get excited about seeing a project that they really want to back and they don't fully embrace the idea that this may not be, the final product may not be exactly what these CAD renders of what they hope to produce look like. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and and I guess um, there's always risks that, like, I have backed some projects, and great, I've got this awesome new game, and it might be version 1.0 of the game or whatever, and so I recognize that there's some rough edges, and I'm okay with that, or, and, and what have you. Um, but I've also, you know, hey, I've got this cool little new game, but nobody wants to play it, right? <laughs> so um, that's always a risk. One of the great rewards of, of a crowdfunded project is that there's a lot of potential to expand your horizons into all kinds of crazy new things that otherwise would have no chance of ever getting made, right? That's awesome. But it's also possible that now you have five different new games at your table and your players are just going to, they just want to roll some D&D tonight or whatever, you know? Um, 
So that's always yeah, they're not as excited about it as you are. Yeah, and so that's always something to keep in mind. And, and I think most of the time that that's happened with me so far, um, it's something I probably would have backed anyway because it was with people that I liked and I believed in, and I kind of wanted to support them as much as I wanted to get something, you know. Um, so, so that's I, I'm kind of cool with all of that. Hey, I've got a new game book on my shelf, and maybe in fifteen twenty years we'll pull that off and it, pull that out, and it'll be awesome. Um, and, and and like I said, and then the the one of the big rewards is that there's all kinds of stuff that you would never even consider looking into or would never get made, uh, and you've got an opportunity to get in on it. And and there's a possible exclusivity deal there. Right? Sometimes people are on a Kickstarter in order to fund a game or a product or whatever, and they'll make as much as they kickstarted it, and that's it. The only way that you ever could have gotten that product is if you kickstarted it, or if you backed it in some other uh, source or whatever. Uh, and so, if there's something you're interested in. It's not always beneficial to just say, oh, I hope it gets funded, and then if it does, I'll buy it later, because that doesn't always happen. So you need to keep an eye on those kinds of things. Um, but, you know, I, I would say that I, if as I look through the things that have funded for me, I have two, two things that I've never really used on that list. And one of which, which is actually the cheapest thing I've backed, um, has produced the probably the best single session of a game that I've ever run. Um, and, and I'm going to go ahead and pimp that one because that was uh, Mike Shea's Aeon Wave. And since mm. Mike is a, is a friend of the show, I don't feel bad saying good things about Mike. Um, so, so that's, you know, and that, that, pro- that, prob- that is a product that probably never would have been made if he hadn't. Uh, crowdfunded it on Kickstarter, right? But now that is in the now that is on in the world because of that, and it was it's a great product and a, and a lot of fun to have. Uh, another example that I'm going to name um, is is Shadow of the Demon Lord, right? I backed Shadow of the Demon Lord. Um, what was that last year when it when it funded? And I, I I wanted enough to get PDFs of everything and a hardcover of the core book. I'm still getting product <laughs> from that Kickstarter. Like, I cannot go through a week without getting more modules out of that Kickstarter. It's like, oh my gosh, I thought we were done six months ago, and you keep sending me more. Like, I now have more Shadow of the Demon Lord stuff than I could ever play. <laughs> and that's all from one Kickstarter. So the value, as much as, I mean, that's probably my, the most expensive um, pledge that I've ever had. But the value of, I mean, I clearly feel like I'm getting a, like two, three hundred dollars worth of, of stuff out of this, and and I pledged under a hundred, right? So so the value can can be phenomenal on these kinds of things. Um, so yeah, so I think there's, there's all kinds of things to consider in terms of risk and reward. So it might completely fall flat, but it might completely blow up, blow up and be awesome for you. And that's where Chris's comment that that just remember it's speculative and you don't know what you're going to get you don't know what's going to happen so keep that in mind you might end up with the best thing ever you might end up with nothing and it could be anywhere in between a couple of other quick risk reward things that uh that came up to me or came to mind while we were discussing it um one of them is never ever ever assume the um, assume that you're going to get a product by a specific date if you're planning for a birthday present or a Christmas present. Mm. <laughs> because I've had some of those fall flat, like, hey, I've got this great Christmas present for you. Okay, you're going to get it in June. Yeah. <laughs> because these people miss their, their date. Uh, the other potential 
risk. And it's similar to what you just said with the Shadow of the Demon Lord, because now I've also got more than I could ever possibly run, and I still haven't gotten run, around to running the base game yet. Um, yeah, or you could have some, I've, I've run one one-shot on it. Yeah. Like, I've stolen lots of stuff from the book, but I've not actually gotten to play the, uh, play the system yet. Yep. Um, the other potential risk is you get a situation where you have... Um, Reaper Bone Miniature Guilt, <laughs> where you've got all these miniatures that you got for a fantastic <laughs> price, and they're sitting there, and you're like, ah, I need to paint these. I can't back any more Kickstarters until I paint the ones that I've got. And it's this painful guilt that just reminds you mm-hmm. that somehow you ended up with 300 minis, and you don't know how you did that. Yeah, the Reaper Bones one is an interesting one. Oh, my one. goodness. Because Those what, ones I, remember, were... I remember when that first one came out, and it was like, you could spend X amount of money, and you get so many miniatures for that. I'm like, how is that not a deal that I have to jump on? And then I remembered, yeah, but I don't paint miniatures. Like, I don't – like, <laughs> it's awesome to get 300 unpainted minis, but I'm never going to do anything with them because I've never painted a mini in my life, and I don't really want to. I don't have time for that. I'm getting a PhD. That takes all of my time. I have kids, and that takes all the rest of it, right? So – so there's no chance I'm ever going to get into into painting minis, um, but it was such a good deal. I was st- even then I was still tempted, but but I managed to to make my willpower save, I guess. And that's the paradox of a lot of these things. It's like it's only a, a good deal if you're going to use them. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I've you know learned and done lately is if there's a project that I see and I think, hey, that's really cool. But realistically, I know that you know this is not something my cl- play group is going to uh, attach to. Because I think if you know, I'll, I'll speculate that you know the people that buy a lot on Kickstarter are in general early adopters when it comes to games. You know, I know for myself, I'm usually or at least often the one within my play group that says, "Hey, there's this cool new game. Let's try it," as opposed to my friends who are who have the things they like they know they like it and they stick with them i'm an admitted magpie in that in that sense when i see something cool off to the side i want to i want to know all about it so uh but there have been games that i've seen that i think wow that looks really cool but you know i know i'm never going to get my playgroup to play this so i'll give them a dollar or five dollars or something like that to just help that artist and creator realize what likely is a dream to them to have people that they don't even know contributing to their idea because they think that idea has merit. Absolutely. And, and yeah, I have several um, project products or projects that I've backed mostly because it's like, yeah, that's kind of a cool product and, and I might do something with it, but I also know that the person who's making it prob- prob- possibly because of this podcast, I've, I've, um, met a lot of people in the community and I like a lot of those people so when I see something come up it's like yeah I like you and I want to see that be successful for you let me throw in enough that I get like a digital copy and maybe I'll do something with it someday and maybe I won't but at least I can feel like I've, I've backed a project I believe in from a person I believe in you know and backing a project that way can also be a good hedge uh, because I know for certain like there's some backers that I've gone back to repeatedly and some of them, even though I've got them eventually, I haven't been a fan of the way that the campaign was handled. And to, in my experience, that hasn't been out of anything nefarious or underhanded. It's just, you know, it was, it was likely the case that they, they were overwhelmed and didn't know what they were getting into. Mm-hmm. So most of the things that I've backed, I know it's not true for all projects, 
there will be a quote-unquote retail version available eventually. So what I've done with some backers who I like their work but maybe not their logistics is I'll throw in a few dollars to help the campaign succeed, and then when it's generally available, I'll buy it then. Hmm. Well, and now, a, you won't get... Uh, the thing, Go ahead, Jeff. And a, and a lot of them... Um, so for those unfamiliar with Kickstarter, I want to go through the process, the step-by-step process of how you back something in a second. But but after you've backed something and after it's funded and after it's finished and they're ready to fulfill and start sending out their digital copies of things or whatever to you, um, there is uh, a, a service called Backer Kit where they will basically send you a survey and say, Here, here's what you pledged, here's what you get. Um, but a lot of times one of the things, one of the options that you have is, and here are some add-ons. Um, so you tell me when you back at a lower level, when you back at one dollar or five dollars or whatever that usually just gets you the thank you, do you still get access to the backer kit where you can add, where you can buy the add-ons and still purchase copies of the book you know, a la carte? Typically, yeah. Yeah. So that's like an option as well. Throw in, throw in a couple bucks, and then if you like the way it turns out at the end of the campaign and when it's finished, then you could through the add-on process pick up the the you know the the PDF or the hardcover or whatever. And to me, even though I know this isn't, but it's something, are we going to talk about add-ons at some point, Jeff? Do it. Okay. Cause one thing, and Jonathan, I'd be interested to know your opinion on this too, is one thing that, uh, crowdfunding projects generally do, or many of them do, I should say, is they'll have their, what I'll call baseline product that they mm-hmm. want to bring to life. But then they will also have, it's kind of like the, the old infomercial, but, but for just $5, you can get this. And for $5 more, you can get this. Mm-hmm. It's there. It's a great way to generate excitement. And the bones campaign by Reaper miniatures was a great example of that. I mean, there were so many tiers. I think they literally had one for every 666 layers of the abyss, but, um, <laughs> they will have ways that you can add on and add on and add on to your pledge. And usually it's a function of the more you add on, the greater value it is. One thing that, from my perspective, that makes me sometimes wary of a campaign is when the add-ons seem out of control or too good to be true. Uh, And I'll give an example from a campaign that I recently backed where this... uh, that phenomenon reared its head. Uh, about a year and a half ago, I want to say, uh, Cryptozoic did a Kickstarter for the Ghostbusters board game, the first one. And I think they're either in the midst or just have completed one for their first expansion for it. What attracted me to that campaign, because I'd already been through a bunch of campaigns with a lot of add-ons, what attracted me to that campaign was that the in- when it was launched, the initial backer levels, there were only three. It was basic retail version of the board game that would be available after the campaign was concluded, Uh, a Kickstarter premium edition of the board game that came with extra figures and some upgraded components, and then they had a retailer package that got you six copies of the core board board game, the non-Kickstarter exclusive Mm -hmm. one. And what was attractive to me about that was, from a manufacturing perspective, I felt, well, that's really going to limit the amount that it gets delayed because fulfillment-wise, those are only three SKUs that need to be processed. Right. 
where there's a where I don't think a lot of people, and I don't want to claim that I have a profound understanding of this, but where a lot of people, you know, get a lot of aggro and don't really understand where delays come from is when you have these myriad of add-ons. You know, every conceivable combination of add-ons. Think of that as a retail skew that's that some organization has to assemble and ensure is correct and ship out. And so if you've got 15 add-ons, even a relatively modest number like that, the amount of manpower that has to go into all the various combinations there takes a long time. And most people that run Kickstarters, they have to employ a third party to do that. And there's, there's one company, I believe now they're called Ship Naked. I think they had another name before that fulfills a lot of big Kickstarters. And I've seen a lot of vitriol towards that company online, but I think people don't have an understanding as to the level of organization and logistics that's required to properly assemble and do the quality control to ensure that all those add-ons were added together correctly to send them out. Uh, so I know people have been frustrated by delays, but it just necessarily takes longer. I mean, if you've got you know 15 factorial possible combinations of things... And each one of those things may only be put assembled a handful of times. That that is endemic to creating delays. And mm-hmm. so, if you're seeing a project with a myriad of add-ons, factor that into when you're expecting that to be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And I think that's fair. I, uh, my big, as you talk about that, the big example in my head again comes comes back to Shadow of the Demon Lord, right? There were there are I'm I'm roughly a metric ton of, of different products associated with backing at a certain level. Um, that said, he was upfront from the beginning, like this is when the core book will be done, and after that is done, then you'll be getting X amount sort of each month as we go through. Uh, so he sort of paced himself from the beginning, like you're gonna we're gonna fulfill the the original product at this time. And then you're going to keep getting stuff slowly trickled out to you like over the next year. So just be patient. It's still coming. One good uh, – one kind of good warning sign or uh, maybe it's kind of a double-edged sword. Projects that start off with things like stretch goals and add- add-ons yeah, planned in from the beginning. We need to define the difference between stretch goals and add-ons yeah. and rewards and all that. And we'll get to that in a second. But go ahead. Okay. Uh, so I was going to say, if it's something where it's kind of planned out at the beginning, that's usually a better indication that, right, we've like, we, we've already kind of factored this into our costs, what's going on, everything's going, that they are kind of already prepared. Um, the risk with that is sometimes some people will launch a, um, a Kickstarter so that, that the base level is really, like, it's not a complete, it's not a complete thing. They're kind of counting that they're going to hit those stretch goals and add-ons. Um, so that can be kind of risky. But what you really need to watch out for is people who have, say, a very successful Kickstarter, and then they start throwing things at it to get more people to pledge and more people to do add-ons. That's usually a really big red warning sign if suddenly these stretch goals start kind of really coming out of nowhere. Um, people are are better about it now, but early on in Kickstarter, whenever um, you know when people were still kind of getting used to this whole thing, uh, the one that's jumping out to me is the. Um, the giant in the playground reprint drive, which was the first in my mind, the first campaign that really used like add-ons and stretch goals really well, and you know it ran like a one point three million dollar Kickstarter oh, wow. campaign, and a lot of those are still not done. 
And that was 2012. Wow. Um, now, like I said, the primary the primary function to reprint books and everything that all went out you know, great on time. But like bonus comics and things like that, that are yeah, years and years and years behind. And do you expect that you'll ever see them? Um, like, are you still getting updates from it? Once in a blue moon, yeah. Yeah, so I'm not, ex- every I'm now not and expecting then, it, but yeah. Every now and then, I get a project where it's like, okay, it's been six months since an update. They've given up. <laughs> like they they're not yeah. doing anymore, and they don't want to you know officially let us know that they've given up. But they're not coming back to this thing. It's not going to happen. I'm never going to see that that DVD. I'm never going to see that that book or whatever. And what you described, Jonathan, was exactly what happened to the Ghostbusters board game. You know, about a third to half of the way through, and it was all it was almost enough to make me cancel my pledge mm-hmm. because they. Again, maybe probably because of the initial success. I mean, it was successfully funded by a factor of three, I think, within the first week. And then about halfway through, they started adding the, you know, doing all the stretch goals and add-ons. And it really, it made me nervous and it, it caused significant delays. And again, people didn't form their expectations correctly. And there was some really, you know, I mean, it's one thing to be frustrated but the, you know, people took it to the next level, I'll say, in terms of how they were critiquing that company. So that, that's, the whole concept of stretch goals and add-ons and all that is tricky, though, because that's also part of what's exciting about a Kickstarter project, right? Uh, part so should of, we describe the difference? Yeah, part of the fun uh, for me is I, I backed this thing early on. It funded quickly, and then in the last couple of months we added on several stretch goals and I'm going to get way more than I thought I was yay like I feel like I'm getting a bonus you know and but I think the ones that are like we'll add 12 pages to the to the book or we'll we'll throw in you know this optional rule or we're going to bring in this guest author to write a short story about it or whatever those I typically see being fulfilled but I also feel like they were planned ahead of time so are those the kind of uh, stretch goals that you're wary of, or is that so, is that fundamentally different somehow? Yeah, I mean, just the ones that seem to be done with the heart more than the head. Like, I, I'm confident that most that you see when they're exploding is because there's an enthusiasm from the creator and a, you know, a gratefulness to the worldwide community that's backed their idea, and they want to give more, but... You know, perhaps have not fully thought through you know, what are what does this mean scale wise for the cost of my project? Okay, so it's uh, it's a matter of the scope of the stretch goal. I think small stretch goals tend to be be pretty good, right? Um, yeah, ahead, I mean, it, I would say it, it depends. You really need to look at what it is. If the stretch goal is, hey, originally we were going to have this be in black and white, but now we're going to make it be in color. That's a pretty. You can say, okay, I can see where that would simply cost a little bit more, but you know they've already got all the art and everything there. Not a problem. That makes sense. Uh, for things like the Reaper Reaper minis, uh, all their stretch goals work really well for them because you know with minis that mold cost, that initial mold cost is you know a few thousand dollars, and after that you can produce more minis for pennies. So it makes sense. Okay, when we hit this stretch goal, then suddenly you get these new set of minis, and that works really. It works fantastically well for miniatures. But for things like, oh, hey, if you get this new stretch goal, suddenly we're going to add, you know, solid wood pieces to every single thing in this board game. <laughs> then you have to go, whoa, hang on a second. That is an entirely new aspect yeah, to you know the what game. You're into here. Yeah, that, 
you know, that's that's changes your shipping, that changes your production, that changes who you might be going to for a manufacturer. Those are the kind of things that you have to really step back and go, whoa, 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 hang on a second. Totally agree with you, Jonathan. And one thing that I kind of wish that more Kickstarters would do, you used to see this, but you don't see it as more. Because I think there's a, and, and again, it's coming from a good place, but I think, or I observe, that all of the, or most of the stretch goals that are put out there are about enriching the end customer and the backer, which is a good thing to do. But something that I think that creators of projects should be more confident in doing is asking for, like, citing as a stretch goal something that enriches uh, something that enriches the, the project creator in some way. And I'll give an example of what I mean by that. It's, it's kind of a small example, but I think it makes the point. Uh, there's a card game that I backed uh, relatively recently. It's their second Kickstarter. They're just at the point where within the next week or so they're going to be mailing it out. It's a card game called Super Show. It's a professional wrestling-themed card game. And one of their stretch goals that they cited is if they make this much money is that they were going to buy an actual uh, championship, or excuse me, a ring bell that they were going to bring to conventions, because I guess those are expensive for what they are, so that they could, when they're running tournaments, have it feel more like a wrestling match and ring the bell. <laughs> so I think that's pretty cool. It's not something that, you know, if you contribute money for, you're going to see a direct return for in terms of what you receive. But uh, I'd, I'd like to see more of that because I think that would decrease the propensity of backers strictly treating Kickstarter as a pre-order system. Another mm-hmm. example I heard from, uh, I can't remember the project, but one of the things that they said as a stretch goal is they said, if we make this amount of money, we'll be able to afford to go to 10 more conventions that we ordinarily wouldn't have the, the funds to go to. Hmm. Yeah, and I think that that's that's worth noting. Yeah, and I don't see a lot of those, at least not in the in the handful of you know the dozen or so projects that I've backed at this point. Let's let's back up a second. We've talked a lot about um, crowdfunding in, in various ways, and I think you sp- we've we've talked mostly around the concept of Kickstarter without usually calling it Kickstarter, although we have a few times. Uh, I think Jonathan, in your initial description, you mentioned Indiegogo as an option as well. Are there any other places where you have been back options, places, you know, services, whatever, where you have been backing projects? I've touched on GoFundMe a couple of times, okay. but that's it's slightly different. Occasionally, there will be a you know end reward, but GoFundMe is more of a uh, digital panhandling for yeah. very specific reasons. That's my that's my experience as well, right? Uh, not necessarily because that's what it's designed for, but because Kickstarter won't let you do that, and so people do it through GoFundMe instead. So yeah, it'll, and be, it'll, my, be, it'll be so-and-so just had a house fire, help them get back on their feet sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, like did, I call it sort of crowd benevolence, yeah. you know, a way to... Or, or, and sometimes, like, I funded one or two things... Um, one was actually through Indiegogo. I think they'll let you they'll let you do things like that. But there was um, yeah. a band that I liked, and they wanted to buy a touring van. Uh, it was something that you know it wasn't just a handout per se. It was something that said, "Hey, you know, we're we're a band. We want a tour, and if we have a touring a touring van, that'll make it easier for us to come to your town." Type sure. of deal. So 
even though it was, and and there you know they had kind of you know not rewards in the same way that like a game would, but you know if you if you backed at a certain level, they would give you a coat to like download an album off off their like their digital a digital copy of one of their albums type of deal. Right on. Yeah, and the only other one I can think of um, has anybody ever backed anything through Patreon? Would we consider that uh, crowdfunding? Yeah. Um, That's go ahead, Jonathan. Since I mean, I'm backing a few different things through Patreon. Uh, some some RPG podcasts, some artists, um, and I, I saw that. I don't think that's as much crowdfunding as much as it is saying, "Hey, people who give me free stuff on the internet." I want to show me show you my appreciation by you know, tossing you a few dollars every month mm. because you give me good stuff. And then sometimes the artists internal do things like, or like said, podcast hosts or whatever, will do things like, "Hey, because you are giving me some money, you can have access to say, the episodes a day early." Or like Brian Patterson, I know he um, like every month he like write, "Hey, here's a map that I drew. You guys can have it for free." things like that but I don't consider that crowdfunding as much because it's not a specific project so much as an ongoing thing that you want to support I mean more often than anything it's used for saying hey I really like what you do Mm -hmm. and you know I use ad blockers so here's a way for me to give you money (laughs) okay I I tend to my experience I I don't back anything on Patreon at present but my impression of it more is like you said backing somebody because you want to support their endeavors and there's much less of an expectation that you're going to have something in hand. Or you're going to continue getting the stuff you've already been getting for free in hand, right? Right. That con- like whatever not, content they're creating or whatever. Yeah, I th- but, but I think... The, pe- the people that I know that are that, that are enthusiastic about supporting things on Patreon aren't doing it because of the incremental reward they would get. Sure, okay. That's fair. Um... Although so, was is this it? a build up to announcing the Tome Show Patreon starting in a week or something like that? <laughs> well, since you bring it up, <laughs> the Tome Show has been working on a Patreon for some time now uh, over at patreon.com slash the Tome Show. Um, so, so yeah, there you go. We do have a Patreon uh, that I was going to announce in this episode later, but now we'll just do it. Uh, oh, so, man. yeah, actually, go check it out. Patreon.com slash The Tome Show. Uh, it's still kind of a work in progress now. I've got, like, one or two more um, pledge levels I want to I add uh, for, in terms of rewards. But it's basically all there um, and ready to go. So there you go. You found me out. Although although I, I did I, – I thought about bringing it up pro- uh, differently than, than that is, uh, because uh, – what is it? Ian World – back several of their publications through Patreon. Um, Insider, the 5th edition one, and then they've also got one for Pathfinder. Uh, and you get, you know, you get monthly or whatever articles in, in magazine-style format of those publications, and you pay for them via Patreon to do so. Patreon's a model, like just the concept behind it. It's something that I'm really in favor of. I mean, it's something that mm-hmm. I've heard referred to as value for value. And... I think it's a lot more if you generate enough goodwill with your whoever your customers are, and I use that term generically. Sure. Um, it's it's a really good barometer for is what I'm doing valued, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's a it's a little bit different from like I know, I remember back in the earlier days of podcasting prior to 2010, there was uh, you know I remember several podcasts kind of doing a a, a ransom model. 
whereby they said, okay, we're, we're, we'll, we'll do this if we raise X. Right. And it was met with, you know, polarizing reactions, I'll say. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really think a value for value model is, you know, it's less obtrusive to the listener. It's less, it's less guilt inducing. And right. it really, like there, there's always going to be a certain percentage of your audience that, whether you're a game designer or a podcaster or or anything else, that will will never pay for what you produce. Right. No, and, absolutely. I th- and I would that, argue that that's probably the vast majority of an audience is never going to pay as long as you're giving it out for free, right? Right. And I think you know, it's, it's an easy opinion for me to hold because it's not how I rely on making my living. But I right. think that's okay. I think that's okay yeah, because absolutely. even if somebody is. Because some people say, well, I can't afford it. Well, I mean, you, you, I would say if you're living in the West and aren't uh, <laughs> afflicted by extraordinary circumstances, okay, you may not be able to afford $100 a month, but you could, you could afford more than nothing if you If you, if really, you wanted to, if you prioritize that. But even somebody that pays nothing that, you know, gives you goodwill in terms of recommending you to other people, that, that has a value to it. So. Right. Uh, and Patreon I, is a different model than most crowdfunding sort of things uh, in that, like, you can set up your Patreon to say, yes, I want to back this project every time they produce a new blank, right? A new publication, a new article, a new episode, whatever, I will throw in a dollar, right? And, and But then you can cap it off as, but I'm never giving a, a, any more than $2 a month or $10 a month or whatever um, to make sure that it stays within your budget. So if they don't have, like, you know, so that... It, you know, if you back the Tome Show and then we hit our, our Gen Con coverage and here's 15 episodes in two weeks, we're not going to break your bank, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah. So that's basically how it's how it's set up, uh, and it's a it's a model I I kind of like and I, I can believe in. I actually had uh, listeners asking me, "Hey, we want to be able to support you on Patreon. Do you have one?" And I'm like, "No, but I want to. It's just an issue of time." And so finally, I've. I've sort of cobbled some stuff together. Okay. Um, so I think there's value there. What was that, Jonathan? I was just saying, for me, I, I mean, the Tome Show is actually the perfect example of the type of thing that I support on Patreon because it's one of those where I can say, I've gotten X amount of hours of, like, listening pleasure out of, you know, out of this show. Like, the Tome Show has, I can say, you know, I can say, it has made going to the gym easier because I've got something to listen to and keep me distracted when, you know, my body doesn't want to work. Um, so, and that, for me, is worth, you know, throwing a few dollars a month at it. Absolutely. Um, just because I can say over the last five years, I have gotten at least that much value out of it. I like to think so. But the the format, the, the process of backing something on Patreon is different than most crowdfunding sources. And I think most of us, uh, or the th- of the three of us, most of the projects that we've backed, it sounds like, are through Kickstarter. Is that fair? Oh, yeah. Yes. So, so let's talk about... You, let's use Kickstarter as an example and talk about the process. How do you go through the process of funding a, a project or backing a project? So who wants to, to walk us through the steps? Uh, I'll, I'll grab this one. Um, so you go to a, uh, you go to a Kickstarter, um, whether that's you, know, you just browse the Kickstarter site, somebody links you to it, whatever. You, you Most heard projects, on the roundtable with James Casso? Yeah, yeah, dead on. <laughs> or you, you heard about that Mike Shea guy and you want to go back... You know, Sly flourishes fantastic locations. That's right. Um, so you go, and most most Kickstarters will have a video, which is just a, hey, 
here's the project, here's what we're doing, um, you know, hey, here's some sample images that we have, or here's like you know an overview of it, and then from there you can uh, you can go and you choose your pledge level. Now that pledge level could be anything from a dollar, saying like, hey, you know, I'm just kind of interested in this, or I like what you're doing. Here you go, just have a dollar. Um, or it could be something like, right, I'm going to pay $10 and get PDF copies of whatever the final project is. Or maybe $30 and I want a softcover copy. Or $200, I want the ultra limited edition platinum version <laughs> with all metal minis and everything was, you know, made with, you know, with extra love, whatever. Yeah. Um, so you choose your level and depending on which pledge level you go for, that will give get you, you know, a different in product or the same in product packaged differently. I don't know. Um, and from there, you really you wait. Um, you don't lose any money right then. Uh, you just and if enough people pledge and say yes, I am willing to put my money where my mouth is, and I want to support this project. Once it gets to the end of the time period for the Kickstarter, which is typically a month, that's just kind of the the average. I've seen a few that go longer, but not many. Mm-hmm. Um, then everyone who is still signed up as yes, I want to back. If enough people have pledged to so hit the target goal. That could be five hundred dollars. It could be a thousand dollars. It could be a hundred thousand or higher. If enough people have pledged and said, "Yep, that's what I'm going for," then at that point, then everyone is charged. Um, so, fair warning: you do need a uh, you do need a credit card for this. Um, and then, uh, before too long, you you typically get a uh, you may get a survey, or sometimes that will happen a little bit later in the process. But all your money gets put to the creator's account. Kickstarter takes their little cut off the top. I believe they take 10% of everything. And um, from that point, hopefully, if it's, a, if it's a good project and a good creator, they, they, uh, they communicate with you fairly regularly so you know, right, what's the status of the project? What's going on? Kind of where are they? If it's a bad creator, then they'll either not communicate with you or they'll communicate with you way, way, way too much and you just <laughs> ignore everything you say. Um. And you know, eventually, like I said, at some point, a survey will be sent out to verify things like uh, like your shipping address or your email address if you're getting just a digital project mm-hmm. or whatever it is. And then, in time, you receive your project or you receive like whatever you pledged for. You, and well, you and that's the thing that you pledged for, and the thing that you get for that is called the, your reward. Yeah. Right. So let's talk about reward versus add-on versus stretch goals. Uh, the reward is the thing that you pledge for. It says I paid fifteen dollars, and it says I get a PDF of the the core product or whatever it is, um, and then I get that PDF. That's my reward. Uh, stretch goals are something that take place during the funding campaign as as an effort to not just meet their goal, but try to get people to incentivize people to to give even more. Right. Um, so a stretch goal is if we if we match our funding goal and then go this much over, we'll throw in a little something extra. And sometimes it's an accessory, sometimes it's a couple more pages, sometimes it's, you know, uh, black and white artwork turns into color artwork, sometimes it's it, the product turns into a hardcover book, um, all that kind of stuff. In fact, I've had some some projects where I funded at one level until it hit a stretch goal where it became a hardcover, and then I funded enough to get the hardcover, right? Because um, I wanted, you know, I didn't want to spend that much money unless I was going to get the, the hardcover for it. Uh, and so that, and so there's all kinds of different things that can happen there. Then add-ons are something that you can purchase in addition to whatever it is you, you bought for your reward, right? So I backed uh, Primeval Thule, the, the Sasquatch Games um, 
Conan meets Cthulhu setting when they did uh, a version for 5th edition D&D. And so I backed that. Um, and then after I got that survey saying, you know, give us your shipping address and we'll, we'll send the book out and whatever, um, then there's a page that says, oh, and if you want to buy a second copy or if you want to buy a third edition version of the same book or if you want to buy some, some of these adventures that we also created or whatever, then that's where you can throw in a, a, some extra money and get those things. And that's where you were saying, you know, if you wanted to just really test the waters and say, hey, I'm going to throw in $5 here and it won't get me any, pro- any, any products on automatically, when that survey comes out, then I might say, okay, it turned out really good. Now I want to buy the hardcover of the book or the PDF of the book or whatever. Um, and so that's an option to, to play it safe, I guess. But that may not help the, product, the project get funded um, as, as much. But it, uh, it, can, it can be a, a direction of going, right? Does that cover reward versus stretch goal versus add-on? I think you nailed it. Okay. I think so. So my – starting to wrap up because we've gone an hour now – um, how do you decide what to pick and what not to pick? What to back and what not to back? And that puts me in mind of a question that I wanted to pose to you because mm-hmm. I think it's, and, and I'm interested to know from both of you, to what extent do you back something once you see somebody post about it on Twitter or Facebook versus going on Kickstarter's site and just searching the categories? Mm-hmm. Because for me personally, yeah, go ahead. Most, yeah, sorry, Jeff. Most of what I've backed is uh, based on hearing about it from a post from usually one of my friends or in a like a Facebook group that I'm a part of. Yeah, I have never backed anything based on just browsing Kickstarter. Um, everything that I've backed has been either somebody posted about it on Facebook and I said that's awesome, or it's somebody because because of the podcast, right? Somebody reached out to me and said, "Hey, we got this thing going on. Can you support us?" And I usually my answer is no, because you're two weeks into the project and um, our turnaround time is not such that I can do that. But if you if you had emailed me a month ago, maybe you know. So just heads up for anybody running getting ready to run a Kickstarter, uh, unless you reach out to me before it launches, the odds are no, I'm not going to talk about it on the show. Just because our turnaround time is not that, you know, unless you're, unless you're Green Ronin or Cobalt Press or whatever, in which case I'm going to throw you to James and let him because he records weekly. But um, I've done a few just like browsing through the Kickstarter page, but that's been very, very rare. Almost everything that I do is because somebody recommends it on Twitter. Uh, so you mostly get your recommendations from Twitter. Anything else? Yeah, okay. uh, I mean a couple Facebook, but it's almost all just. Like, fellow nerd people on Twitter. Yeah, that's that's fair. I think most of mine I've picked up from um, from Facebook, friends on Facebook. So similar concept, but a, but different network, you know. I just don't spend as much time on Twitter these days as I used to. It's probably a good thing. <laughs> well, maybe in some ways. <laughs> Although there's this whole community I'm not as connected to as I used to be. I just uh, don't have the time that I used to have. Okay, so so... Back to the original question, then. How do you decide what to, what to back and what not to back? So you, you somebody posted about this, this Kickstarter. You're kind of half interested in it. You go check out the page. What do you look for? How do you make the decision? Yes, I'm going to give them some money, or no, I'm not. My first thing, which I mentioned earlier, is how experienced are they at crowdfunding? And 
you know, a product of how experienced are they at crowdfunding and how much have they engaged in crowdfunding in the past. So how many, in Kickstarter terms, how many projects have they created, how many of those projects were successful, and how many projects by other people have they backed? Because to me, that forms a picture of how well they understand how to do a crowdfunding project. And uh, it, generally, it's just down to, like, is this something that I think is cool? I mean, it doesn't really get much deeper than that. Um, occasionally, I'll back something that, like, relatively recently, uh, I backed uh, a game called, and I don't even remember it. Let me just bring up my list here. Uh, the, uh, the Forgotten. It's a LARP. I don't LARP. Uh, but my friend Rob Wakefield was the graphic designer on it, and I wanted to support him. So that's those are kind of the two categories, if I like it or if I know the people that are involved. Mm-hmm. Jonathan, how do you decide what to, what to back and what not to? So, I mean, so assuming that I, so I, I watch the video, I read everything, and it looks like something that I'm interested in, um, then some of the things that I start asking myself is... Um, first off, financially, is it worth it? Because there's some people who have no idea how to price Kickstarter stuff. And I'm like, this just money-wise just isn't worth it. And then I start looking, do I reasonably think that these people can actually do what they're saying they're going to do? Um, and sometimes that could just be like, wow, like this looks like a really cool board game. I have, n- I have no faith that you have the ability to get all these models designed and printed or whatever. Um, the... Uh, <laughs> One thing that you actually do need to really pay attention to, does this person have legally have the right to create what they're saying they're going to create? Mm. Um, I know there was, uh, there was some you know, dust up for because of a, um, like some people who wanted to do like a Star Wars thing. And people very quickly pointed out, like, you, you can't just do a Star Wars thing without you know, the Star Wars license. Um, there's a project I backed a long time ago um, for a documentary about Dungeons and Dragons and it's been held up a long time because of legal issues because there are different people claiming that you have the right, you don't have the right etc, etc. That may have been the project that I was referencing earlier, yeah. yeah. Um, and I've got a couple of those so make sure these people actually do have the, um, have the right. Well and that's a unique one, right? Because they did have the right but then part of the yeah. team that was making it split off and then they both claimed the right and yeah. Um, one thing that is, it's a weird measure. So, like I mentioned earlier, you know, you, you go to a Kickstarter, and a lot of times they've got they've got a video. Sometimes the video can get can be a good indication where if you see, hey, they've actually spent a lot of time and polish making sure this looks really good. Sometimes that can be a good indication, like, hey, these people actually they've got a good eye for detail. They take their time. They they make something good that looks nice. But you have to make sure you don't get caught up in flash and then realize that there's nothing there. And again, on the other hand, some, there are some people who they just they just don't have charisma. They just have no camera presence, and no one's ever taught this poor person how to speak in front of a camera. And you watch this video and you're like, wow, you are the dullest person that's ever existed. That doesn't necessarily mean the project is going to be bad. Right. So using the video is, it can be a guideline, but I mean, you have to go in with a lot of caveats on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last thing I check for is, like, I read some of the frequently asked questions and I look kind of through the details of the campaign. Have they taken into account all the all the delays and all the, like, all the different factors that are going into it? So if you, you know, so if you're looking at publishing an RPG, you know, have you, have you been in touch with, with, you know, book publishers and binding companies? If you say you're going to get art, have you actually looked at how much art costs? 
because a lot of people are surprised by how much good art costs Mm -hmm. and just making sure that they've started factoring in all the various costs. So those are usually the kind of the, the things that I start going through. Um, and as bad as it is, a lot of times the name and the reputation of the person doing it. Mm-hmm. So again, if it's somebody like Sasquatch Games, like Cobalt Press, um, Money Cook, Rob Schwab, or even Mike Shea, like right, I know these people. They put out good stuff. I can trust the quality of their work. Versus you know Joe Schmo, who just suddenly has a good idea and wants to yeah. do it. Those are the things that I'm a lot more hesitant hesitant on. And you just named the creators of like half of the things that I've backed. So. <laughs> I love Joe Schmo's stuff. Uh, yeah, Joe Schmo's the best. Oh, he does great work. Horrible about uh, <laughs> horrible no about camera presence. Though. Yeah, yeah, no, and I, I, I tend to have a, because I got burned fairly early, right? Uh, like I mentioned before, of the first four things that I backed, I've got one of them sort of completely fulfilled. Um, so because of that, I'm, I'm, a, I guess I'm a little gun shy when it comes to um backing things now so i if i look at my last like six seven projects that i've backed they're all from people i either know personally or uh, have connections with or have a history because they're like sasquatch games or whatever right um so i've gotten pretty picky like i need to see that you have a history of publishing which sucks because part of the whole point of kickstarter is that it's a chance for people who don't have that history to to get something funded and do something that you otherwise wouldn't see, right? Um, so there's certainly that, but but at the same time, like I I backed projects from Mike Shea before he ever published anything, but I also felt like he'd done his research, right? I knew that he knew what he was doing, and maybe that's because I'm friends with Mike Shea and I talked to him about it, and he you know he we talk about what he's doing and and all that kind of stuff. Um, but at least I know that he's doing his research and he's taking it seriously. So, so you got to look for those indications that they kind of, they are taking it seriously and they've done their research and they know what it's going to take and what it's not going to take. Um, and of course, if it's a big company or, well, I mean, big company, I don't know that you could call Sasquatch Games a, a big company, right? There's like, what, three of them? Um, but a company with history of successful publishing, um, then, then that's an easy one, right? If 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 it's a a, a company or a, or a designer that I know, I believe in, uh, and it's a product that I'm interested in, awesome. I, I'll back that, right? Uh, and I'll back it every single time. Um, but if it's not, then I really hesitate, and I have a really hard time at this point in my in my backing career. Um, I have a hard time backing the Joe Schmo work, you know. Uh, I know I shouldn't, but. I'm a grad student and a teacher, so I don't have a lot of money in my life. <laughs> so I'm not going to ba- start backing a lot of projects that, that don't have a track record for me. So, Yeah, and that's a good point. I mean, you should never back anything beyond your budget. I mean, like, you know, that's good life advice for anything. Yeah. It's not a Mr. need. Mr. 70-plus projects backed over there, Jonathan? No, no, no. I was I – was, okay. Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> I used but, to have a lot uh, more disposable income. Yeah, I do not anymore. <laughs> something else, something else to remember is that you know, these campaigns run for thirty days. Like, even though some of them try to create urgency around, like first hundred backers get this that no one else will ever get. You know, try not to get caught up in the excitement and enthusiasm of what may be. Back for a modest amount early, and wait to see 
what the campaign's looking like with a week to go. Yeah, you can always increase you your s- pledge. Yeah, and if you still have the same level of energy and enthusiasm on day 25 of the campaign that you did on day one, and you know, you've come down from that geekgasm that you had when you first saw it, you know, you're, you're going to make a more rational decision in terms of, okay, how do I really value this? And adjust it accordingly. And I think you'll have a better sense for what you really want out of the project as opposed to making an emotional decision because you're excited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's excellent advice. And if you decide that you don't want it, make sure you do go back and cancel it. Because I do have one RPG product in my in my house that I thought I'd canceled. I was certain I'd canceled it. And then it showed up in the mail. I was like, oh, no. Why do I own this? So now it's a doorstop. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so... We don't want to disparage anybody because we know that there's risk and whatever. Then people know what they're getting into. But what was the best project you ever backed? That's my last question. I'll start. I'll get it started. Uh, I already mentioned it earlier. I think that my favorite project that I ever backed was Aeon Wave from Mike Shea. I think it was his first crowdfunded project. He's, he'd published a few, uh, self-published a few things before that. Uh, but I think Aeon Wave, Wave was the first one. It's also the one that I backed for the least amount of money. Um, and he's one of the ones who only had like three or four levels of rewards. They're just, um, you know, uh, and, and it worked out really well. And it introduced me to a new game system. It was the first time I ever played um, Fate. And uh, at the same time, it was probably the the single most fun session I ever engaged in. Uh, it was totally worth my twelve dollar pledge to have uh, a six hour session of just fantastic fun playing a new game system. So uh, I think that was my favorite that I've backed to date. Who's oh, next? Go ahead. Oh, see, I'm torn because there's the ones that I guess delivered the best product and like ran the best Kickstarter, but then there's also the ones that I've gotten the most used out use out of since I've actually received it. Um, so I, I need to make sure that I mention Reaper just because they run a great Kickstarter mm-hmm. and it's a great value if you do like minis, but just be prepared for the guilt um, <laughs> and lots of painting. Yes, um, Dogmite Games has run a few for like adventure cases and dice towers. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those, like, the final product is, like, this big, glorious, like, box with this, like, nasty demon thing on the front. Like, when I pull it out, my players know, like, right, life is getting serious. We need to pay attention because he, he's brought out the DM box, and now things are now things are happening. Um, so that's one that I've probably gotten the most use out of, and I enjoy the most. Um, one that there's a few different ones of that I actually end up really recommending are some of the ones that have, like, like campaign coins, um, or, like, like, like these six like small metal coins, they work great for things like visibly doing like inspiration or bennies. Um, oh, I've gotten a lot of use out of those, and okay. I love them. Great, Chris. What's your favorite project you backed? I gotta agree with you on Dogmite. I didn't back any of their Kickstarters, but Sp- I have spell Dogmite. D o g m i g h t. M i g h t. Because I've never heard of it before. Now I'm looking. So like a, so like a, a mighty dog, Dogmite. Uh, but I bought one of their dice trays, and they are gorgeous. Uh, but I bought it off their site outside of Kickstarter. Now the, the crowdfunding project that uh, I enjoyed the most uh, it was the... I bought into the original... original the first Cthulhu Wars board game uh, Kickstarter. Uh, it was done by Sandy Peterson, who was one of the authors of the original Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. He's somebody that's 
probably among the most, you know, between him and Ken Height, they're probably the two guys that in terms of Cthulhu-themed gaming materials are number one and number two in whatever order you choose. And uh, it's, if I was to summarize it in a sentence, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like Risk, but with the Cthulhu mythos. Now, it's a, it's a much deeper game than Risk, but that's kind of just gives you a sense of the theme. It's a world map that you're conquering with your various Cthulhu mythos. And they went all in and made these gigantic miniatures, like game pieces to play with. Like Cthulhu himself is about nine inches tall. Mm. Like all the miniatures are huge. And I'm a sucker for anything Cthulhu, like, like second only to Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Like that's just putting a Cthulhu theme on it is enough to get me to try it. And I'm really yeah. happy that I did. And it was also a really, really well run campaign because. It was one that was significantly delayed, but uh, Peterson Games did an excellent job of pro- providing updates regularly. Uh, even, uh, and this is important for anybody contemplating uh, doing a crowdfunding campaign, even an update to say there's not an update is an important thing to do mm-hmm. because it lets people know that the you project have, is alive. The you project have abandoned is moving, it, right? Yeah, the project is moving forward. And it keeps the torch-bearing mobs at bay. Uh, so they did an excellent job of just managing expectations, uh, you know, erring on the side of over-communication. And, you know, I've had projects that were delayed by less time, but that I was more frustrated with because of the lack of communication. So mm-hmm. by the time that I got my... Cthulhu War stuff, I was just really happy because I was never in doubt that it would someday arrive and all the rationale for the delays were well explained and reasonable. And yeah. it is a it is a gorgeous, gorgeous product. And I think part of the reason that I that um, I feel like now is a prime time to talk about crowdfunded projects uh, in gaming uh, is especially to a D&D audience is because with the with the release of 5th edition uh, well underway at this point um, there's still very good reason to be like yeah but I don't have all of these things right I want more class options I want more monsters I want more magic items I want a different campaign setting uh, I want a campaign setting but none of that's there right Wizards is only publishing a, a small amount you know I probably don't need more adventures there's lots of options for that but I need a lot of other things um, Kickstarter and, and other crowdfunding sources is a place where you can find those, right? I've, I've backed new class options from Green Ronin recently. I've, uh, if you're complaining about there not being enough monsters in the Monster Manual and you didn't back Cobalt Press's Tome of Beasts, um, then you missed out on a huge opportunity, right? So there, there is a prime chance to, to find both big and small publishers um, putting stuff out on crowdfunded sources, um, sites, and and an opportunity for you to supplement what you've got, right? I'm going to have 400 plus new monsters from my Toma Beast backing from Cobalt Press long before Wizards gives me more monsters, which I think is happening, what, this fall? So, um, that's not nothing. Yeah, that's not nothing. Anyway, we have talked for a very long time. I kind of thought this episode might go short, and here we have talked way more than I expected. Uh, so I'm going to call. go ahead and call this the end of the episode. I want to say thank you to Jonathan Green. Jonathan, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, people can find me on Twitter at, at John underscore M underscore Green. Um, and then if you're listening to this a little bit later in August, I'm actually going to be launching my own Kickstarter for a board game that I'm working on uh, called Necropolis. 
and um, yeah, so keep an eye on that. Make sure you talk to uh, James and I well in advance if you want to come on the show and talk about it, because we will be happily have you on. I, uh, yeah, it's not RPG related, so um, it's a it's so a game. Okay, in that case, yeah, yeah definitely, absolutely, fantastic. All right, and Chris Engler, where can people find you? So I am not a game designer. <laughs> you know, I don't podcast regularly, so don't expect a lot of podcasts. But if you want to see my tweets about gaming and uh, occasionally complaining about uh, Southwestern Ontario Canada commuter train service, you can find me on Twitter at at WAPCaplets. Because that's how you roll. That is how I roll. <laughs> Literally on a train. Literally. Uh, and I want to thank everybody listening within the, the sound of my voice right now for supporting the show by shopping from our affiliate links over at Amazon or the DMs Guild. Uh, head over to thetomeshow.com before you go shopping and click on through the links. You get the exact same experience, but we get a few coppers out of that. Uh, and since we've been talking about all these projects, I want to remind you of the earlier spoiled announcement. Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, <laughs> of the uh, the Tome Show's Patreon, which we've just... Well, I mean, it's been live for a while, but I haven't told anybody about it until, until just now. Um, so that's an option out there if you, you want to, to, you know, support the show on a monthly basis. Uh, we've got different rewards and different goals that we're trying to reach there. Uh, go check it out at Patreon. Uh, Patreon.com slash The Tome Show. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E. E O N, and so there's that all that going on, uh, or you can just continue to enjoy the show absolutely free. Uh, also, once upon a time on Spreadshirt, the Tome Show started selling T-shirts and things, uh, and those are still available out there as well. And hopefully, I will find the link to that and give it to Sam to put in the show notes when he edits this. Uh, so, if anybody wants an uh, awesome Tome Show T-shirt uh, designed by a listener of the show. Um, that is something that we did. I also made stat caps when I found out 5th edition was going to have caps on your stats. So literally there's like a baseball cap with strength across the front of it. <laughs> so Nice. Yeah. Uh, so th- so those are all there. If you want to get a hold of us over here at The Tome Show, you can email thetomeshow at gmail.com or call the biz line at 919-BIZ-TOME. That's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. And that is episode 266, where we found projects great and small, worthy and unworthy, from big names and small, as we discuss advice on backing crowdfunded projects on this episode of... I'm on the wall.